Welcome, friends, to a symposium in honor of the late Judge Stephen F. Williams. On behalf of George Mason University's Steve Gray Center, the study of the administrative state, we're honored for the chance to organize and host this gathering, and we're grateful to be joined by all of you here today, both in person and online. And we are particularly grateful to be joined by Judge Williams' family. Please join me in welcoming his wife, Faith, and his children, Nick and Sarah, who are watching online, and his daughter, Susan, who's with us here today. When Judge Judge Williams passed away last year, we lost a truly great man. Brilliant yet modest, judicious yet joyful. Our lives in our country were made all the better by his irreplaceable contributions to it. Of course, given the breadth and depth of his pursuits, it's hard to do justice to Judge Williams in just a single speech or article. Lucky for us, we have seven. Uh, This event today was the idea of Judge Douglas Ginsburg, Dean Henry Butler, and Professor Michael Grieva. And when they asked the Gray Center to host the event, we couldn't have been happier, and we're grateful for this opportunity. Each of today's speakers has written a paper on a different aspect of Judge Williams' life and work, and you can find the early draft versions of their papers on the Gray Center's website. We hope to have them published together someday in their final form in a symposium. For today, we've divided the papers and the speakers into two groups. Later, you will hear a conversation about Judge Williams, the American Constitution, liberal democracy, followed by uh, keynote reflections from Judge Ginsburg. But we begin with a conversation about Judge Williams and the subject for which he was perhaps best known, administrative law. The moderator is the Gray Center's co-executive director, Professor Jennifer Mascot. I'll turn it over to her to introduce the panel and the panelists. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our first panel. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, As Adam said, obviously, Judge Williams has just a terrific legacy of jurisprudence. This particular panel is going to start off by talking about um, his expertise in the area of administrative law, regulatory cases. And we are joined today by an all-star lineup with Professor Tom Merrill, Ambassador Seaboyd and Gray, um, and Professor James Huffman. And so I'm going to briefly introduce them all. And then uh, beginning with Professor Merrill, they will give some remarks describing their scholarship and their paper on a particular aspect of Judge Williams' jurisprudence. And then we'll have a time of discussion among the panelists and then time for questions from the audience. So we're really glad that you're here uh, with us this afternoon and that we have um, such an esteemed panel uh, with such a vast um, depth of uh, expertise in administrative law here to talk with us today. So beginning with Professor Merrill, he's the Charles Evans Hughes Professor of Law at the Columbia Law School. Um, He is one of the most cited legal scholars in the United States. He teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, constitutional law, property law, teaches torts law, among other areas. Um, He was a clerk for Chief Judge David Bazelon on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, of course, the court on which Judge Williams served. He also clerked for Justice Harry Blackman of the Supreme Court. He has a vast government service. He was a Deputy Solicitor General at the Department of Justice. He was an associate at the law firm of Sidley and Austin, and he served as counsel there for more than 20 years. He's written uh, a number of scholarly articles and amicus briefs on the issues of courts and administrative deference, and has co-authored numerous books and many, many, many articles. Um, And then we'll move and hear remarks from Ambassador C. Boyden Gray, who's the founding partner of Boyden Gray & Associates, which focuses on constitutional and regulatory issues. Ambassador Gray has very uh, lengthy government experience. He worked in the White House for 12 years. He was counsel to the vice president during the Reagan administration, White House counsel to President George A.W. Bush. And in that role, of course, he helped a lot with judicial uh, nominations. He was also instrumental in the enactment of the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 and the Energy Policy Act of 1992 and was U.S. Ambassador to the European Union and U.S. Special Envoy to Europe for Eurasian Energy. And so he has a lot of on-the-ground experience with administrative law, of course, as well. And then we have James Huffman, Dean Emeritus and Professor of Law at the Lewis and Clark Law School. He joined the law school faculty there in 1973 
served as dean for quite a number of years and returned to full-time teaching in 2006. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, and he's been a visiting professor in many uh, diverse places, New Zealand, the University of Oregon, in Greece, in Guatemala. He was a fellow at the Humane Studies Institute, a distinguished Bradley Scholar at the Heritage Foundation. He's previously chaired the Executive Committee of the Environment and Property Rights Practice Group of the Federalist Society. He's the author of three books and more than 100 articles on a number of topics, including environmental law. So with that, I will turn things over to Professor Merrill to discuss his wonderful essay on Judge Williams that you can also access on the Gray Center's website. So thanks to those of you who are here in person and for those of you joining us online. Uh, thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, in order to um, confine this to the allotted uh, minutes, uh, let me just jump right in. Um, my my uh, paper uh, uh, in draft form really suggests that there are three salient characteristics or aspects of Judge Williams' work in administrative law. Uh, one is his um, uh, rock-solid fidelity to uh, authoritative law. Uh, he did not. He was not uh, a judge like some other uh, uh, D.C. Circuit judge, whom I will not name, <laughs> who uh, felt that it was their prerogative to uh, go beyond uh, what the uh, controlling legal text uh, said uh, in order to make administrative law better. Uh, judge Williams uh, always acknowledged that he had to confine himself to the laws uh, that had been uh, enacted by Congress, particularly the Administrative Procedure Act, and more broadly. Um, uh, the controlling decisions of the Supreme Court. Uh, so fidelity to law is one theme. Another theme is, is creativity. I, I'm quite struck by the fact that Judge Williams, within the limits of the law always, uh, had a real knack for coming up with uh, creative uh, solutions to naughty administrative problems. Uh, he obviously worked hard at this. He gave it a lot of thought. Uh, and his work uh, in this regard, I think, has been deeply influential. The third theme or characteristic that I would emphasize uh, is I think his work was guided overall by a very uh, sure sense of comparative institutional advantage. And I think this comes from his deep background in economics. Uh, uh, he, he wanted, uh, to the extent he had uh, the discretion to do this, he wanted to assign to agencies uh, tasks that they were better qualified to perform and to have courts perform tasks uh, that they had superior abilities to perform. And so I think that theme comes through uh, in his work uh, clearly as well. Um, one notable contribution uh, by Judge Williams, actually then Professor Williams, that I did not mention in my draft, which I do intend to include in the revised version, um, is uh, something that happened uh, in the mid-1970s, back when he was an assistant professor at the University of Colorado. He was asked by the Administrative Conference of the United States to conduct a study into something that Judge Williams subsequently called hybrid rulemaking. Uh, uh, this was uh, something that had caught the fancy of some judges on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, basically, uh, it, it consisted of uh, reviewing agencies that were engaged in uh, rulemaking that involved difficult scientific questions on the frontiers of science uh, in the area of environmental law, consumer protection law, and so forth. Um, and the judge was uh, were sort of frustrated by the use of these bare-bones notice and comment procedures that uh, the Administrative Procedure Act seemed to prescribe. Uh, and so they started uh, directing agencies to use uh, more trial-type proceedings uh, in resolving these rulemakings, uh, uh, for example, to allow cross-examination uh, of witnesses. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this trend, this phenomenon, caught the attention of the Administrative Conference. They asked uh, Professor, then prof Assistant Professor Williams, uh, to uh, do a study of this. And it's quite a remarkable study. Um, uh, and I think it embodies all of these characteristics uh, of Judge Williams uh, well before he was named to the bench. Uh, uh, he was, um, first of all, um, quite uh, aware uh, that the uh, decisions by the D.C. Circuit judges did not have a very solid basis, shall we say, uh, in the text of the Administrative Procedure Act. He was polite about this, uh, but he was quite firm in pointing out that these uh, decisions were vulnerable uh, on that basis. He also, I think, had a very astute analysis of uh, how um, it would be unlikely in a case involving uh, rulemaking where scientific evidence was at issue, for example, that cross-examination was going to be very helpful in deciding whether a particular scientific study was valid or invalid. This is, cross-examination is unlikely to do very much to um, 
uh, uncover flaws of that nature. Uh, one aspect of the study, uh, which as I said was published in the University of Chicago Law Review in 1975, uh, that I found particularly interesting was that after criticizing gently uh, the D.C. Circuit judges for going off and imposing this hybrid rulemaking on their own, he offered a creative reading of the Administrative Procedure Act that could have reached a similar result, but would be consistent with the text of the APA. It had to do with the fact that the APA authorizes uh, courts to uh, engage in de novo review uh, of agency action when there is no adequate factual basis uh, in the record, uh, or maybe no record at all, as was the case of informal rulemaking. Uh, and he suggested that when you combine uh, the mandate for de novo review with what he characterized as the, what he thought was the most general principle of administrative law, um, uh, that the court's duty is to preserve agency autonomy to the maximum extent consistent with performing the functions of judicial review, uh, that the court could remand the case to the agency and essentially tell it to conduct the, the uh, trial de novo. Um, and that would be consistent with the APA. Finally, there was a lot of empiricism in this piece. He actually went out and did a detailed study, made phone calls and interviews with people involved in the uh, what happened on remand after the D.C. Circuit had uh, directed this hybrid rulemaking. And guess what he found? Uh, he found that uh, cross-examination either had never been asked for once it was authorized by the court on the grounds that everybody recognized it would be futile, or it was used as a bargaining chip uh, by regulated parties to try to get some other concession from the agency. Uh, so uh, this was a remarkable piece of work, and I, uh, this is entirely conjectural on my part. I asked John Harrison about this a little bit before, but uh, I can't help but think that this article very favorably impressed uh, the Reagan administration when they were looking for a judge to replace Malcolm Wilkie uh, in uh, 1986. Uh, um, if you read this article sympathetically, I think, and, and, and from the perspective of, say, the Reagan administration, I think you would see that this would be an ideal candidate for the D.C. Circuit, somebody who was, uh, had the various characteristics reflected in this piece and was... Uh, appropriately skeptical, but not in a snarky sort of way uh, to what the D.C. Circuit had done back in the 1970s. Uh, a few other, how much more do I have? Uh, five, minutes. five minutes. Let me just briefly mention some other notable decisions that I think also um, reflect uh, these characteristics in, in uh, Judge William once he got into the court and started uh, deciding cases involving administrative law. Uh, one pair of cases that I think both reflect his creativity and his fidelity to law has to do with how you distinguish between a legislative rule and an interpretive rule. Now, those of you who uh, practice or do administrative law uh, will know that this is one of the naughtiest problems in administrative law. The APA uh, does not provide any guidance uh, on how to draw this distinction, but procedurally there's a huge difference. If it's a legislative rule, you have to go through notice and comment, uh, which is a, you know, a, can be a fairly time-consuming uh, process involving public participation, an opportunity for comments, and a responsibility to respond to those comments. Uh, if it's an interpretive rule, you don't have to do anything. You can have an interpretive rule which is announced in a, in a letter or, or an amicus brief or something like that. Uh, and the courts had had no success in figuring out the distinction between these two. So in a case called American Mining Congress um, versus uh, Mine Safety and Health Administrator, which is, uh, I think, Judge Williams' most famous administrative law case, at least outside the standing context that uh, Jim Huffman's going to talk about. Um, uh, Judge Williams took it upon himself to come up with some guidance. And he, it was, it's, this opinion is reproduced in every administrative law casebook, in every legislation casebook, in every leg reg casebook in the country, as far as I'm aware. Uh, what he did is he said uh, that if you look at all the cases, you can see that there are four circumstances where you always have to gauge in legislative rulemaking. Uh, uh, and he enumerated them. Uh, uh, if, if it's a necessary predicate for enforcement action, you have to do legislative rulemaking. If you're repealing a previous legislative rule, you have to do legislative rulemaking. Um, if you're invoking a specific authority in the statute that authorizes legislative rules, it's a legislative rule. And finally, if it's published in the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, it's a legislative rule. Why is that? Because the Code of Federal Regulations says that it is limited by law to regulations that have general applicability and legislative effect. So this was a very creative opinion. It's still widely cited and utilized today, and it was a, a contribution uh, uh, in, in the gap, so to speak, that's uh, uh, left by the law by Judge Williams. Well, why does this suggest his fidelity to law? Well, because a couple of years later, 
another case arose. Uh, uh, this one uh, in, had the name Shalala in it, I guess. Uh, it's in my notes here someplace. Uh, uh, Insurance Health Association versus Shalala. And in the briefing in that case, uh, the parties uh, pointed out that, you know, uh, the agency doesn't decide whether to publish it in the Code of Federal Regulations. Uh, a committee that supervises the Federal Register decides whether it goes in the Code of Federal Regulations. So Judge Williams thought, well, okay, I missed that. And so in his opinion in the Health Insurance Association case, he amended his four-part test in the American Mining Congress and said, well, I, I, I was kind of wrong about publishing in the Code of Federal Regulations because it doesn't really, it's not truly reflective of agency intent to make something legally binding. It's only somebody else's opinion that that's what it has the effect. So I thought this was a kind of amazing example of somebody who uh, makes an important intervention, a creative intervention, but then is willing to retract part of it when, he's, when it's pointed out that uh, the law is um, uh, otherwise. Um, is that enough? Okay. Uh, Whenever you there, there's more to say. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit oh, about please, uh, please, please go. Yes. About uh, substantive, about procedural due process, right. and this raises another interesting theme, which some of the later papers today I think will talk about, which was uh, how you uh, the difference between being an academic and a judge. So, when he was an academic uh, at the University of Colorado, Judge Williams wrote an article published in the Journal of Legal Studies. Uh, it would never get published there today because it didn't have a lot of equations and stuff in it. But uh, back then, they were more eclectic or, or open-minded anyway. There's a great article called Liberty and Property, the Problem of uh, Government Benefits. And so this was a critique of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, which had said that uh, uh, government benefits like welfare and a government job and so forth are property for purposes of the procedural due process right, and therefore you're entitled to a hearing before you can be deprived of this type of property. Uh, and Judge Williams says, well, this is just kind of really uh, overbroad. It doesn't have a lot of resonance with what the framers thought and so forth. And he came up with a brilliant theory, which was you really only ought to be able to get a hearing as a matter of right if the government has some monopoly over the benefit in question. If the benefit is one you can get in a competitive marketplace like a job, uh, you shouldn't be entitled as a matter of constitutional law to a hearing before it's taken away. So that was his academic view. Then as a judge, he gets this case called Griffith versus Federal Labor Relations Authority, where the question is whether somebody who's denied a, uh, uh, a, uh, a pay increase as a federal employee is entitled to a hearing when the supervisor says that they didn't perform in a satisfactory fashion, and therefore they're enti not entitled to a general in-step pay increase. And so this was uh, an issue that was left open by the Supreme Court cases. There's no sign that he went back to his academic work or that he had some kind of big theory he wanted to propound about there's no monopoly here or anything like that. He was very attentive to the case law uh, that the Supreme Court had decided, but he realized it had left in a lacunae. It had never addressed the question of, of pay increases and depriving somebody of a pay increase gives them a hearing. And again, he sets forth a four-part test. I will not go through the whole all four parts, but... Uh, he uh, sets forth a test for how you deal with things like pay increases or non-pay non increases and, and so forth, which is still the law in the D.C. Circuit today. It's been so cited and followed by uh, hundreds of cases almost. Uh, and again, it uh, reflects his, his ability to creatively tackle a legal question when it's within the space left by uh, leading legal authority or, or controlling legal authority. Um, and his capacity to move the ball forward uh, in a very constructive way. I'll stop there. And, That's and wonderful. Uh, Thank you, in Professor. The comments right now. Ambassador Gray. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, it's, it's an honor to be included on this on this panel. Um, I want to address <clears throat> Judge Williams' work in connection with basically one case, but how it impacts um, three sort of not hot button necessarily, but three current issues of administrative law, which I'm sorry he is not alive to, to witness develop. And that is the non-delegation doctrine, its impact on Chevron and economic analysis, cost-benefit analysis and related, and related issues. And I think he felt that the American trucking case, the D.C. Circuit panel also included uh, Doug Ginsburg, who Judge Ginsburg was here, um, I think he thought the Supreme Court treatment of his solution in that case to the non-delegation problem uh, was a loss. 
And um, I, I think he never quite really got over it, at least in my discussions with him about it. I tried to reassure him that it wasn't a loss. It wasn't a complete victory, but it was, I think, better than <laughs> my colleague to my right, better than a nice try. It actually did put a modern revival um, um, trigger, and we now see it. Um, we now see it uh, all over the place, and it's, it, I think that's attributable to what he innovated in the American trucking case. And why do I say it wasn't a failure? Well, because the court did recognize there was a non-delegation problem that had to be addressed in the case and was addressed. People tend to forget how it was addressed, but it was. And um, there, um, what, one, of the, one of the offshoots was Scalia's uh, observation that, or ruling, that if you have a non-delegation problem, the agency can't provide a limiting principle. That's not for the, for the agency to decide. There's no deference to be accorded to anything the agency does try to decide. The courts have to decide that issue. Uh, and that is a big exception to the, to the Severon Doctrine, which, which hasn't really been played out, I think, in the case law, but it's, it's right there as plain as, as can be. Uh, and um, as I say, he did narrow the, uh, he did narrow the, the, the terms of the statute by adding words that were suggested by the Solicitor General um, that, that the agency could do no more than is necessary to protect the public health. And that was a, a, not, a modest, not a modest change because he was bringing into, into play all of the OSHA cases which had uh, and, and been, been, been narrowed by the non-delegation doctrine going back to a Rehnquist concurrence in uh, the benzene case and followed up his case law about the D.C. circuit and the lockout tagout cases. So he was realigning and bringing the line, the Clean Air Act, with the uh, OSHA statute, which was, which was a significant change. I remember when Seth Waxman was interviewing my old law firm, uh, Wilmer, Wilmer Hale now, Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, we weren't interviewing him, he was interviewing us, that was clear. Um, and uh, he didn't know that I had had an indirect role in this case, he had no idea. But he said that it was the most scary moment of his professional life, up until then anyway, because EPA was intransigent about acknowledging some sort of limiting principle in the, in the establishment of a national ambient air quality standard. And try as hard as he could, he couldn't get them to budge, and so he did an audible in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, oral argument and made an addition or suggested a narrowing to uh, the court, uh, which had not been authorized by EPA, and I'm sure they didn't like it at all, and, and sort of unusually, Scalia picked it up, cites to the transcript for the, for the authority for his ruling, no more than necessary. And this was not, as I said, an insignificant change by bringing it in line with, with the benzene case and its progeny, and he, which, which stands for the notion that you've got to at least be dealing with a significant risk. So this was, this was not inconsequential, I think. I don't know. I've never actually talked to Sunstein about it. But those, many of, of here may remember that he um, rejected, he rejected the, uh, um, the ozone standard or revised ozone standard proposed early in the Biden uh, Obama administration. Uh, it, it didn't make that much of a stir at the time, but I think the reason he did it was because uh, much of what EPA had said about the rule uh, indicated that it, that, it, that it was going beyond what was actually necessary to protect public health and indeed involved uh, imposing technology that didn't exist and still doesn't exist. So uh, I think it was a consequential um, decision, and I, I'm, I'm sort of amused that Waxman would share all this with me. He probably would not admit it today, maybe, but that's uh, that's neither I think neither here nor there. Um, and it turns out that um, in addition to narrowing the statute in that way, the court also, and this has gotten no attention uh, really at all in the academic literature, so far as I can say, it basically overruled. A, previous case, Union Electric is called, which said that uh, you couldn't do cost-benefit analysis uh, um, if you're under, by, by, a state couldn't do it in establishing the rule, implementation through a SIP state implementation plan. Uh, you couldn't use cost-benefit analysis 
unless uh, you, you were not under a deadline, but EPA was always under a deadline. And so by allowing the states to use cost-benefit analysis, I think vindicated, uh, in a sense, vindicated uh, um, Judge Williams' uh, view of the economic analysis that he felt was, uh, was necessary. I think that I, I go one step further and say significant risk in many ways, if you read a lot of the opinions, some of which were his, in the D.C. Circuit, um, that significant risk st standard it revolves around that is a backdoor way of looking at cost-benefit analysis because how can you possibly judge significance without judging without judging the uh, the economics? Uh, later, uh, the cost-benefit test was incorporated by Scalia himself in one of his uh, last opinions, Michigan versus EPA, that if you have a really big gap between the benefits and the costs, you have a problem of arbitrary and capriciousness, and uh, I think that that's something which, again, has not yet really played out in the case law, but I bet you, I bet you it will. Uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting aspects of, uh, to me, Williams' uh, decisions was a short concurrence he wrote in an incomprehensibly complicated and, and, and convoluted a uh, new source review case uh, called EPA versus New York. Um, I, I don't know how many people here in this room are familiar with new source review. If you're not familiar with it, just forget about it because it's it's really. I mean, you can you can send your grandchildren to college on it, but it's a uh, it's it's a totally um, merciless uh, and useless um, today um, concept. But the idea was you can't make a major modification without going through you know, all kind of permitting uh, hearings and whatnot. And um, the, uh, the, the, the rule that you, that, you, that, you, that you have to go through all this distinction between old sources and new sources and what's a measure of revision and what's not uh, was, just, was just intolerably. Read, read the decision in that case, and if you get anything out of it that makes sense, let me know. <laughs> But he wrote a concurrence saying this is a perfect example of why we need to have emissions trading or some sort of economic market-based solution, which is agnostic as to whether it's an old source or a new source. It applies to everybody across the board. We don't have to have cases as convoluted as this. And the, and the concurrence always amused me because he wrote it in the middle of the implementation of one of the great market incentive uh, programs ever, which is the Clean Air Act. Title IV amendments of the Clean Air Act uh, about using acid rain uh, implementation as part of an emissions trading system. But the parties had never argued it. And so he, why would he know about it? Uh, it was never, you know, it was never in, published in any academic journal. It was just totally ignored. But it was a, it was a miracle, and we basically eliminated SO2 from, from the environment as a result. And it's been, been magical. It's something that was, I think, thought, thought up recently, originally by probably the Chicago School um, years ago, Coase and some others. Uh, Bruce Ackerman had a hand in it. Um, the Environmental Defense Fund was a great defender. They were the ones who designed the program, Title IV, and the Clean Air Act. And uh, it worked like, a, worked like a charm, but he didn't know about it. And the reason he didn't know about it is the lawyers didn't want to argue because, guess what, they couldn't have educated their children and grandchildren on new source review if, um, if, if, if the trading system were really recognized in that case. Now, we made a mistake, I mean, I confess to contributing to the mistake, of not saying new source review is, is, is totally irrelevant when you have a steeply declining uh, overall uh, level of, of emission. Uh, it just doesn't apply. We didn't do that because we didn't think it was necessary, but it turns out that it would have been very, very useful. I think I'll sort of um, stop there. I think that I hope that um, the Michigan case, the cost-benefit analysis, acceptance by Scalia, which he kind of in a funny way rejected, uh, partially rejected in the original decision in American Trucking, I hope he felt some comfort from that. But I think today you could say if you look at how often American Trucking is cited in all of the all of the lead-up to uh, the Gundy case and some other issues that are bouncing around in Scalia, uh, excuse me, Thomas's scholarship in this arena. Uh, I think it's it's clear that 
that case uh, has revived a modern uh, look at all of this. And I'll just close by saying, at the end of the day, uh, I don't know, Jennifer, whether you want to comment on this or not, but Thomas wrote a concurrence in that case, and the conclusion of this concurrence was we need to look at non-delegation. And I think that's happening now, and I think that's the result of the initiative that's taken by Judge Williams. And I have to say also Judge Ginsburg, who's here and is going to talk later and contradict probably everything I've said. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ambassador Gray. So now Professor Huffman. Uh, thank you, Jen. It's an honor to be here with the Ambassador and with Professor Merrill. Uh, I, uh, I, I knew Judge Williams when he was Professor Williams, not well, but he, he was a little ahead of me in the academic career path, uh, but I knew him when he was at Colorado. And then years later, he was kind enough to join the Board of Visitors at uh, Lewis and Clark Law School, where, where I was dean for many years, uh, more years than anybody with any sense would be a dean. <laughs> um, I think what my, my paper and my comments here will, will really illustrates the, the points, I think, that Tom made in terms of the, uh, the three characteristics of uh, Judge Williams' Uh, decisions, and I can il illustrate with just a few case examples. Uh, uh, and I would add to it one other, which I think, and I will also try to illustrate this, that he had a real capacity to explain complicated things in lay terms and to use examples that that uh, regular folk, uh, the clients of those who paid lawyers a lot of money to represent them, to, could, could, could understand. Uh, my, my topic was environmental law. I should also say I, I am not an administrative law guy. Uh, I uh, was a constitutional law professor my whole career. Like Tom, I did torts. Uh, but I did a lot of environmental and natural resource-related law. And, of course, environmental law is almost entirely administrative law. So uh, I guess that makes one uh, an administrative law person, but certainly not of the uh, experience of, of my two co-panelists. Uh, First, if you're talking about environmental cases, what are environmental cases? Well, I used a fairly loose definition and came up with 134 opinions, mostly majority opinions, a few dissents, that Judge Williams wrote on the subject of environment, which I also included energy, uh, and some land use related uh, kinds of cases. Uh, and at the, at the top, what is the environment? He took a broad and, I think, correct view of the environment as something that in includes human beings in a case here in D.C. Uh, involving the Kingman Park Civic Association against Bowser, which was just uh, five years ago in 2016. Uh, it was over the approval of a streetcar project, and the District of Columbia argued that the Environmental Protection Act of the District of Columbia, uh, uh, which used the term environment, uh, in contrast to NEPA's use of the term human environment, meant that it had narrower application in the District of Columbia than did uh, environment, human environment in, under NEPA. And, and this is what Judge Williams wrote. He said, the word environment would seem to encompass every environment, whereas the human environment, if actually intended to be different from environment, appears narrower, potentially excluding any non-human environment. Though, as a practical matter, such an exclusion would seem very narrow in effect, given the human race's near ubiquity in the portions of the universe where government might undertake a project. So, for him, in, in, the, the argument that was made in, in Kingman, of course, uh, by the District of Columbia was not accepted. Tom and, both, and, and, and Ambassador Gray both mentioned his reliance and use of economics as a tool, and I'll just give you a couple uh, of illustrations of that. Uh, in in a, uh, uh, a case uh, involving uh, a challenge to a FERC approval of the uh, expansion, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission expansion of a commercial marina, which was located uh, at a hydroelectric project, uh, he pointed out that the standards that went into licensing a hydroelectric project uh, were various factors, one of which was not how much recreation might be created by this reservoir that was created. And what 
uh, was proposed was to expand the marina on, on the reservoir. And he explained this, this issue in the context of the tragedy of the commons. And he says in his opinion that we all know about the tragedy of the commons. I'm not sure if that's just not a lot of law professors and economists who, who uh, treat that as commonplace notion. But in any event, uh, he, he pointed out that, uh, that the, the real question was that it was just like Garrett Hardin's illustration of the tragedy of the commons of a pasture. You put an extra cow on, and the incentive of the individual who owns the cow is to add another cow without regard to the impact on the aggregate production from all the cattle on, on, on the reserve. And he says it's the same thing in this lake or this reservoir in terms of the capacity to accommodate uh, recreational uh, boating. And I think that was uh, uh, absolutely accurate. He also used economics in a lot of other ways, including in, in uh, explaining how to value production uh, in, in the uh, energy world, again, in another FERC case. Uh, but he used a, a, a very nice illustration of the fact that uh, past production is is a relevant factor in, in uh, assessing pre net present value. He said, quote, the capital value of any property is in essence the net present discounted value of its anticipated income stream. This is true even for a shirt, which generates a stream of non-pecuniary income in the form of satisfaction as it is worn. Uh, even I could understand that. Uh, there were endless standing cases, and that's sort of the nature, I guess, of of a lot of environmental law cases. And I would just point out a few characteristics or a few things that I think Judge Williams was very consistent on in his, uh, in, in ruling in standing cases. Uh, uh, first, he made clear that it was an issue in every case, whether or not the parties raised it. Uh, he wrote in a, in, in another FERC case, Exelon Corporation against FERC, uh, and, and with citing Lujan against Defenders of Wildlife, which is a Supreme Court decision uh, on standing, says that, quote, while FERC does not contest standing, we have an independent obligation to our, assure ourselves that standing exists. Uh, well, if you take that view, and I think that's the correct view, uh, you're going to get a lot of, of cases in which you have to uh, address standing, presumably every case, although uh, often not in, in, in any depth. The test for standing, he was very clear on that, and I think it's the, the textbook definition of what this test is. An injury, in fact, fairly traceable to the challenged agency action, that will likely be redressed by a favorable decision. Uh, but applying that, of course, is not always straightforward. Uh, and uh, uh, in, in a uh, fairly early case, the 1996 case, Mountain States Legal Foundation against Glickman, uh, he uh, observed, quote, to make the point perhaps obvious, but which we found no cases, that on any given claim, the injury that supplies constitutional standing must be the same as the injury within the requisite zone of interest for purposes of prudential standing. So you can't argue that some agency action is you have standing to challenge it if you have some other injury that's totally outside the zone of interest of the uh, sought to be protected by that, uh, by that statute. So it was a fairly narrow, or, or I would not say narrow, but a very uh, precise understanding of what standing required. Uh, but he was, uh, in at least one case, fairly generous in my reading of the case about uh, whether or not there should be standing. He said in a, 1987, very early in his career, uh, uh, he questioned the lower court's um, uh, application of standing doctrine that he said required the three elements that uh, that I mentioned, and he said really the plaintiffs didn't really satisfy two of them in their in their evidence. But uh, he said if you looked, and he used some data from the, this involved the Bureau of Land Management uh, that they are supervising 12 million acres, uh, of which there have only been uh, uh, oper challenged operations on 540 acres. He said that, that's a pretty small. Uh, number of acres, but if you take all the cases that might come under this, there's likely to be injury to somebody, so we'll let this case go forward, even though the plaintiffs really failed uh, to, 
to bring the evidence that they should have. And, and, and the last point I'd make on standing is he made a distinction that I think is very useful between the imminence of the harm and the probability of the harm. And he argued that uh, it, it isn't enough to say that the, that the harm is, is imminent. Uh, uh, it also has to be probable. Uh, and let me just quote uh, what he wrote about that. Standing depends on the probability of harm not its temporal proximity. Uh, his reliance on probability analysis helped bridge what he called a gulf between the antipodes of standing doctrine, the imminent injury that suffices the merely conjectural one that does not. We have insisted, he wrote, in a, a case called DEK, Energy Against FERC, that to escape the latter characterization, that is to escape being merely conjectural, the claimant must show a substantial, if quantifiable, un, if, if unquantifiable, probability of injury. Uh, and, and I think that really helped to clarify what uh, kind of injury had to be shown. Uh, I know there's going to be discussion of, set of constitutional issues later, but I, I, I do just want to comment on the uh, separation of powers issue. Uh, I, I noticed in, in Tom's paper, he, he, he says, rather than getting hung up on the abstractions based on separation of powers or the inherent powers of the courts under Article Three, Williams looked to judicial competence. I think that's accurate. But I'm, I, I'm probably, because I teach common law, a little hung up on, on those, uh, uh, on the separate, on the abstractions of the separation of powers. Uh, the case that, that uh, Ambassador Gray uh, talked about, American Trucking, when I, I surveyed a few of my colleagues in the environmental area, and we have a lot of them at Lewis and Clark, asking them what, what's the most significant decision that uh, Judge Williams wrote in the environmental law area. And to a person, they said American trucking. And I would say to a person, they were glad that it got overturned because most of them see the, are, are proponents of, of more rather than less, uh, regulation by the administrative agencies. Uh, uh, but I, uh, and I think I've been educated, I know I've been educated by the ambassador, uh, because in my paper, I say, that the non-delegation non doctrine is moribund. I've been corrected on that. It's not moribund. It's well alive. And, uh, and, and uh, I think that's uh, uh, a very important point that the ambassador has made. But I, I would point out that another example of Judge Williams using sort of uh, commonplace illustrations of the point, in that case, uh, he wrote that... Uh, the primary ambient air quality standards, the attainment and maintenance of which are requisite to protect the public health, that's the language uh, of, from the statute, with an adequate margin of safety, is as though Congress commanded EPA to select big guys, and EPA announced that it would evaluate candidates based on height and weight, but revealed no cutoff point. The announcement, though sensible in what it does say, is fatally incomplete. The reasonable person responds, how tall, how heavy? Uh, again, I think something that uh, a lay person can, can well understand. Uh, Judge Williams did get reversed in another case by the Supreme Court that was particularly important in my part of the country, the Pacific Northwest, in Sweet Home Chapter of Communities for a Greater Oregon against Babbitt, which was uh, the spotted owl controversy of the early 90s. Uh, and uh, it, the, the question that he got reversed on was the assessment of harm under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service had defined harm to include significant habitat modification that leads to an injury to an endangered species of wildlife. Uh, and the plaintiffs argued that this expansive definition was not authorized by the statute. And, and on rehearing in the case, Williams agreed saying, quote, the service's definition of harm was neither clearly authorized by Congress nor a reasonable interpretation of the statute. And he went on and said, in one sense of the word, we harm the people of Somalia to the extent that we refrain from providing humanitarian aid. And we harm the people of Bosnia to the extent that we fail to stop ethnic cleansing. By the same token, it is linguistically possible to read harm as referring to a landowner's withholding of the benefits of habitat that it's beneficial to a species. A farmer who harvests crops or trees on which species may depend harms it in the sense of withdrawing a benefit. 
if the benefit is withdrawn by important, if the benefit withdrawn be important, then the services regulation sweeps up the farmer's decision. Uh, I assume I'm about out of time, but let me just make a couple of other uh, observations. I think uh, it's been mentioned that he was willing to correct himself, and, and, and in one of the environmental cases, I think illustrates that point. Uh, in a 2004 case, Safe Food and Fertilizer v. EPA, uh, on uh, rehearing and reconsideration of the case, he wrote uh, that uh, the court's reliance on the conclusions of a particular study may have gone farther than any express EPA language justified in equating it with an EPA study that was in the record and was expressly relied on by EPA, but which we as lay judges found ourselves unqualified to interpret. Thus, our original opinion made certain connections that ought not to have made, been made, assuming they can properly be made by the agency. Uh, and lastly, uh, a, a, an observation about uh, uh, Judge Williams' uh, understanding of what the capacity of the competence of, of the court is. Uh, uh, there was a, a recent... Uh, uh, New York Times story, if I can find the quote from former uh, um, well I've lost the quote uh, uh, former uh, uh, Solicitor General uh, Varelli was quoted in the New York Times the other day on the subject of, of President Biden's uh, vaccine mandate saying that it is unquestionably constitutional, I can't get the quote up, but I'll summarize it, that this is unquestionably constitutional uh, because, essentially, courts don't have the competence to pass judgment about uh, the relative safety and effectiveness of the vaccines. And I think Judge Williams would have agreed 100% with that, but he would have said that doesn't mean there's not a remaining issue for the court. Because the question is, does the president have authority to do this and that is a question that's totally independent from whether or not the uh, executive order uh, is justified. In my looking at these 134 cases, I kept score just to see how Judge Williams came out uh, or how the uh, parties to the cases came out. Uh, and for whatever it's worth, uh, in cases involving government versus industry, the government won 49 and the industry won 46. And, of course, winning is a little hard to define in a lot of these cases because there's a lot of other issues often involved. Uh, in, a, in cases involving environmental groups, the government won 24 and the environmental groups only nine. And I attribute that largely to the standing cases because many, many of the environmental uh, cases, I think, are often pushing the boundaries on standing in order to get themselves uh, before the court. And lastly, on cases relate between the government, the federal government, and state governments, it was six to zero in favor of, of, of the uh, federal government. Uh, so in summary, I'd say, in reading all these cases, I think one thing that really jumps out at me is I never felt that Judge Williams offered his opinions on policy questions. He always, as Tom suggested, focused on, on the legal questions uh, uh, at stake. Uh, and so... I think at least his career belies the often expressed notion to, in today's politics that judges are, are politicians in, in, in black robes. He certainly was not. He was very careful and consistent, I think, in his decisions right throughout, the, uh, right throughout his career. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's great. So we've got standing, we've got delegation, we have Judge Williams and the rule of law. And so I want to give um, actually each panelist a chance to follow up on others' remarks. Um, it sounded to me like uh, Professor Huffman was assenting to Ambassador Gray's focus on delegation. And, and just to sort of um, bring together kind of the discussion, um, you know, the thought, the classic admin law, so I'd be curious to get Professor Merrill's views, the classic admin law teaching doctrine is that the doctrine came up in a set of cases 80 years ago, has basically not come up again. The Supreme Court rejected it again recently in the Gundy case. But Ambassador Gray is saying that's the wrong way to look at it. It's been used as a narrowing construction in statutes. And indeed, by Judge Williams himself, which is why it's the topic of, of today, 
um, in a decision involving the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is the topic of many current news articles because it's a source of authority for the Biden vax mandate. And so Ambassador Gray is saying, well, if it's seen as a narrowing construction in statutes, it's wrong to think of the delegation doctrine as as dead. Perhaps it will be applied in this different context and the justices have expressed renewed interest. So um, it, do folks agree? Are there other things you'd like to follow up on, Professor Merrill? Um, well, I, I think this focus on American trucking versus Whitman is entirely appropriate and quite revealing. Um, um, and, and I think um, I think you can juxtapose Judge Williams' uh, salute. I mean, I, I think we'd all have to admit that the language of the statute, Section 109 of the Clean Air Act, is hopelessly uh, uh, non-directive. Um, so what are you going to do about it? So Judge Williams' solution was, uh, yes, this is overly broad, and we should require the agency to tell us more specifically what the criteria are for deciding whether something is requisite to protect the public health with an adequate margin of safety or whatever the language is. Um, when it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Scalia, who in many respects I think you know, he and Judge Williams tended to agree a lot on the court-agency relationship point, but... Justice Scalia says, uh, no, the agency has no business particularizing this standard. Uh, that's for Congress, and if Congress failed to do it, the statute's unconstitutional. But then now Ambassador Gray tells us that actually Justice Scalia smuggles in some restrictive language uh, into the meaning of the statute. So, in effect, the, it's the court that's telling us is, uh, how to restrict the uh, overly broad, open-ended, vague language of the statute. And this strikes me as uh, one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now in administrative law. Um, uh, the Chevron Doctrine, I was going to mention it in my talk, but I desisted from doing that. Uh, <laughs> I've got Chevron on the brain because I'm publishing a book uh, shortly on the history of the Chevron Doctrine, so you'll have to excuse me. But anyway, the, um, uh, Judge Williams' instincts always was, uh, as I said, he had in this early article, he says, the most pervasive principle of administrative law is the court's duty to preserve agency autonomy to the maximum extent consistent with performing the functions of judicial review. Judge Williams' instinct was, well, this is overly broad. Let's get the agency to, to, to narrow it, to specify exactly what the criteria are. The current uh, Justice Scalia's instinct, of certainly later in his career, uh, was as in Michigan versus EPA, for example, that, you know, he's going to tell us how to restrict the broad meaning of the statute. Uh, I, I guess the, the most uh, far-reaching example of this is the Rapinos case involving the scope of the clean water permitting requirement where Justice Scalia gets out Webster's Dictionary and says <laughs> that the waters of the United States mean relatively permanent standing or flowing waters, and that's as far as the agency can go. Well, no one had advocated that. The agency had never adopted that. <laughs> So I think what we're seeing now is a Supreme Court that's going to sort of uh, uh, shoulder the burden of, and, and Stevens did this back in the Benzing case uh, before Chevron, but I think the Supreme Court it seems to be shouldering the burden that it's going to interpret these statutes, it's going to narrow them, it's going to make sure they're not overly vague such that they violate the non-delegation doctrine. But Judge Williams' instinct was, you know, well, if it has to be narrowed, I think the agency is the better one to do the narrowing. Great. Thanks, Professor Merrill. And, and Ambassador Gray, I mean, what I'm curious about is we see the court even most recently this last term claiming, at least in the area of remedies, that it, it's a little bit more hesitant about reconfiguring statutes or being consistent with the statutory text or a renewed focus on textualism. And the cases that we're talking about here with Judge Williams and others are going back a few years and rely, at least in the broadest theoretical sense on the idea of the constitutional avoidance doctrine, which is that if there's a constitutional question, perhaps there's a little bit closer look that needs to be taken at the statute. So I'd be curious as to whether, how you think that cuts with the current court. I mean, is the current court going to be so focused on textualism and so hesitant to apply its own narrowing construction in this last couple of years that they're going to be forced to just go with the constitutional version of the doctrine or not? Or do you think that justices, without saying so, will kind of implicitly adopt a narrowing canon because that's the best way to get the non-delegation doctrine smuggled into statutes? <laughs> I don't think he smuggled it. He refers to it twice in the opinion um, to what uh, Waxman did and how he adopted what uh, Waxman interpreted. But this, um, you know, it depends on the facts. But Sunstein, I think, has written a whole 
set of law, remember one, one law review article anyway about non-delegation as a, as a limiting canon. Uh, so as a canon of construction, I think it's alive, perhaps more alive now than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. But I think, it depends on the case, but I think the Supreme Court will do another Schechter or Panama or Fine. They'll throw a statute out. That's my bet. You heard it here. And if I lose, I'll eat my whatever. Yeah. How many years do terms do you think it will take for us to see? A you know, I, that's, that's, I'm okay, not going right, to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate the bold prediction. So Ambassador Gray says on the constitutional grounds, a statute will be found to be, to violate the delegation principle sometime in the future. And it certainly seems as though, and your paper goes through this, so I recommend folks to read it, goes through the various statements that five justices basically have made or signed on to that suggest that they have concerns with the current breadth of power that um, the courts have been willing to allow Congress to delegate to executive agencies. Um, and so, Professor Huffman, I wanted to um, circle back uh, on, on a lot of your work with standing doctrine, and you did just a masterful job of, of going through Judge Williams' various um, aspects of standing jurisprudence. In your view, I mean, what is the impact that that has had on the law either in other circuit courts or influencing the thinking of the Supreme Court. So, for example, with the imminence versus probability standard or um, really being disciplined to make sure that folks claiming zone of interest standing also have constitutional standing. What's the best way for us to see Judge Williams' impact in other courts beyond just the opinions he wrote himself? Well, I, I'd have to, you know, sort of survey a lot of other uh, circuit opinions or district court opinions and see to what extent uh, his, I think, very precise uh, approach to standing uh, is surfaced. But I think he certainly has set out very clear standards that are that can easily be uh, applied in other, uh, in other courts. And I think it, uh, if we're concerned about uh, judges not being lawmakers and policymakers and, and rather being interpreters and enforcers of the law, uh, Having a very clear and concise understanding of standing is, is very important because, as I suggested, I mean, I, I live with uh, a faculty of environmental advocates. Not that I'm not an environmental advocate, but, you know, they're, I think they're... You're just not a position, crazy environmentalist. That's right. <laughs> their, their strategic position is, is to get as many of these issues in front of the courts as they can in hopes of, of finding a, a judge who's willing to, to hear the case even if their their alleged injuries are are pretty unlikely, I just wanted to make one maybe ask a question of Tom on the on the non delegation question. Uh, my sense in the constitutional law area is that the, the constitutional law books basically dismiss the doctrine, and that constitutional law professors probably don't teach it. I mean, uh, Schechter and Panama are probably in a footnote somewhere in most common law case books, but and I. It, is it being picked up in administrative law as? Administrative law casebooks have always had uh, either Schechter and Panama refining or, or at least Schechter squibbed, probably as a case. Uh, uh, and, and they go through the whole history. But the, the message that's being delivered usually is that, well, that this was resistance to the New Deal. And that's we've gotten over that, and so now there are really no justiciable limits on right. on the specificity of of Congress's legislation. Um, I've I've written extensively about this, and it's a big part of this book I'm writing on Chevron. Is that there's a second question? It's not just whether or not the statute is specific enough, but it's also whether or not the statute has given the agency the authority to act. Uh, and I think there's some hope that that will actually be re enforced with some rigor. There was an interesting case, I think it was just this last term, where the Federal Trade Commission uh, take, took a statute that authorized it to go to court to get injunctions against people that were um, issuing uh, false and misleading you know, advertisements and so forth to consumers, and they had interpreted the statute to say that they could go and get damages from these people, <laughs> get a court to order damages. The Supreme Court unanimously says, I think it was a Breyer opinion, you know, says, you know, this is just ultra-virus. This, this is beyond the statutory authorization that Congress made to the F Federal Trade Commission. They can't do it, full stop, case overturned. So I think there's some hope that the court at least will enforce those sorts of limitations on agency authority, even if they don't start rewriting statutes the way they did in Benzene and according to Ambassador Gray, Gray uh, did in uh, 
American trucking in order to uh, trim back the, the scope of the discretion itself. Well, I, I would just add that, yes, I mean, the, the, but my, my conception of the Supreme Court acting to throw something out, it would include um, your example of, of saying, well, there's no authority here at all. Yeah, yeah. And that's, a, that's probably what they'll do is they'll say, they'll conclude we shouldn't reach the constitutional issue because, in fact, there's no authority to begin with. And, but I would include that as a victory for oh, that delegation. It, it, it's, it's certainly part of this whole complex yeah. of the legislative supremacy is the basic principle here. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and one, one theme that's come up in, in the discussion and in some of the initial remarks, I think, is how in Judge Williams' jurisprudence, he foresaw or foreshadowed some of these issues, and also that he was writing opinions that were clear and that had administrable guidelines that folks could follow and understand moving forward. And so um, I think one of the best ways, obviously, to honor the legacy of someone is to think about moving forward um, what things they've said or done that can influence us currently in the practice of law. And so moving just beyond cases in general, I mean, what would you each say is one way that we can learn as jurists or students or practitioners um, from Judge Williams' life and, and career and practice, either, either a uh, jurisprudential principle or just a principle of practice that we can apply um, and as a takeaway from his career? Professor Merrill. Boy, that's a big question. I, I think uh, I'm very impressed by Judge Williams' uh, capacity and, and consistent ability to distinguish between uh, legal questions and policy questions. And he may have written a bunch of concurring opinions that uh, uh, Professor Huffman has mentioned some of them, um, uh, or Ambassador Gray mentioned some of them, in which he made some observations about policy and how we could do things better by having tradable emissions limits and so forth. But I don't think he ever saw it as his job to impose those sorts of policy pro uh, prognoses. I think he always understood had a very sure instinct for what the role of the judge was, which was to figure out what the law is, and if it's unclear, to try to extrapolate from the, the points of reference that are reasonably clear as to what the law uh, should be, but not to sort of uh, use the occasion of being a judge to uh, impose his own policy preferences and then doctor it up with a bunch of quotations randomly from a bunch of ca cases that might support that. Uh, so I'm very I'm very impressed by that. I think his his economics background and his extensive background in the West, uh, working with industry and oil and gas issues and so forth, was quite important because he understood how the world works. And if you understand how the world works, and if you have some sense of elementary economics that explains why people do certain things, like you know try to get the government to transfer some rents to them or something like that. Frequently, you write clearer opinions because you understand what the heck is really going on. You're not just up there in abstract land talking, you know, about the dictionary says this or something like that. Uh, you know, so having a, a good grounded sense of how the world really works uh, uh, using common sense and economics, I think, is very important, too. That's great. Thanks, Professor Merrill. Uh, Ambassador Gray, what we can learn. Okay. Uh, Professor um, Huffman. Well, I, I just take this opportunity to mention something Absolutely, from my paper. Please which I think is very important looking to the future. Uh, and that was a, it's a fairly long quote, but I think it's worth reading on his view about the use of models in, uh, in projecting future injury. Mm. Uh, because that, all the climate change litigation and a lot of other environmental litigation at least is based, the, the future harm is based on models. And, uh, and here's what uh, uh, Judge Williams wrote about uh, the approach to models. He said, our approach to this is fairly well established. We have noted that although computer modeling is a useful and often essential tool for performing the Herculean labors Congress imposes on administrative agencies, such models, despite their complex design and aura of scientific, scientific validity, are at best imperfect and subject to manipulation. Since the accuracy of any computer model hinges on whether the underlying assumptions reflect reality, the agency must sufficiently explain the assumptions and methodology used in preparing the model. It must provide a complete and analytical defense of its model and respond to each objection with a reasoned presentation. The technical 
complexity of the analysis does not relieve the agency of the burden to consider all the relevant factors and identify the stepping stones to its final decision. There must be a rational connection between the factual inputs, modeling assumptions, modeling results, and conclusions drawn from these results. Uh, I think he was, he was absolutely right about that, and I think it's very important uh, to take that into account as we, as courts, deal with these cases going forward. Great, thank you. So I, I mean, I certainly have appreciated and learned a lot from um, from each of the panelists here, and um, we will uh, a little bit later this afternoon have a panel focusing a little bit more on um, Judge Williams and the impact that he's had in general on the American constitutional practice of law and liberal democracy and keynote remarks from Judge Ginsburg. Um, the remarks during this panel are reflective of papers that the panelists have drafted that are available in draft form on our website and will be published in the future. So we will make sure to update that um, on the website as well. And so um, just a wealth of, I mean, one thing that struck me from the papers is just the wealth of case law and breadth of opinions and subject matter that Judge Williams was able to rule on and write about in his many years. And you all heard reflections of the remarks. I mean, he was an academic. He had a law and econ background. He understood how sort of the real economy worked. And all of that just so richly influences his jurisprudence. And he really just was sort of a, a, a renaissance figure in that sense, I think, on the, on the D.C. Circuit for many decades. So it's quite an honor to be able to honor him today and look forward to reconvening after a 15-minute break. Thank you.